our uh, mission statement sounds something like this, to make fully devoted followers of Christ who choose to impact their world. And our goal in the church is for the next number of years still to emphasize the last part of that, who choose to impact their world. And one of the most significant ways that we can impact our world is to be witnesses for Christ, is to be those who share the good news of the gospel with those that God gives us opportunity to do that to. Lon Allison gave us a definition of witnesses, which we are continuing to work with. Witnesses, he says, are Christ followers who are called and enabled to guide people to Jesus. They have a genuine concern for the lost. They are in close proximity to those who are far from God. And they have a willingness to learn how to be more effective in sharing Christ. I love that. That describes me. I hope that describes you. Someone who is saved, someone who is concerned about those who aren't, somebody who realizes God has placed you around people who need Jesus, and someone who wants to learn how to share about Jesus. He also gave a definition which we are using to sort of frame this series which started um, uh, the end of January, or the end of, yeah, the end of January. And his, wit- his, his definition is simply this. To witness, then, is to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. We talked about the engagement of God in evangelism and in witness. So to witness is to cooperate with the Holy Spirit and others to bring one or more persons one step closer to Christ. In other words, we all have a part to play in bringing somebody one step closer to Christ. Some plant, some water, but God is the one that causes growth. And so I find just great comfort and relief in that um, definition as well. So may God help us to try and be those who bring people one step closer to Christ with the help of the Holy Spirit. Last month we looked at uh, the story of Philip, the evangelist from Acts chapter 8. And Philip was what we call an intentional evangelist. If, if I were to ask you to raise your hands this morning and say, who among here is an intentional evangelist, I would dare say we might have one or two hands go up. An intentional evangelist is, is somebody like, um, oh, I can't remember his name now, uh, the guy who led uh, Youth for Christ for so many, Campus Crusade for Christ, Bill Bright. Bill Bright could talk to anyone, anytime, anywhere about Jesus and often lead them into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. He just had the gift of being able to share the good news of Jesus Christ. So that was what we looked at. So some of you then might have said, well, I'm off the hook. I don't need to be a witness then. Well, we've got seven more, and this morning is the seventh one. And then we'll have six more. So we will all find a place eventually amongst those who can witness. The one that we're looking at this morning is Peter. And uh, I like to call Peter a proclamational evangelist. In other words, he's something who simply proclaims Christ. Now, this is often the role of uh, pastors or or, um, uh, teachers, um, but we can proclaim Christ in our families. We can proclaim Christ at Tim Hortons. So it's one that just has has the gift of proclaiming Christ. And again, if I were to get you to raise your hands this morning and say, how many of you think that you are a proclamational evangelist? I would say that maybe you would get about another three or four hands go up. So that way there's six of us accounted for now. Um, the rest of you will be accounted. But we can still learn from this particular way of sharing our, our, the faith. James Boyce begins his, uh, uh, his look at this uh, section of Scripture this way. He says, From time to time I read accounts of revivals in which the Spirit of God worked in such strong ways that many hundreds of people responded to the gospel. 
Yet in all those accounts I have not read of any in which a sermon was so blessed by the Holy Spirit that 3,000 people who were before it were lost in sin and blinded in their ignorance, far from God and faith in Christ. They turned from their sin, they responded to the gospel call, and they entered into a company of God's people within the church. Yet this is what happened at Pentecost as God blessed the first great sermon of the church age. He goes on to say this, It's a sermon that every preacher should study. Yet more than that, it is a sermon that all Christians should study because although in a formal sense most Christians do not preach sermons, all nevertheless have opportunities to speak about Jesus. And so we can learn from this passage because God gives each of us opportunities to speak about Jesus. A few things that I just want to draw to our attention this morning as we move our way towards the Lord's table is that uh, Peter was aware of the context and the people that he was talking to. As he talked to them, his, his, his proclamation was rooted in Scripture, and it was focused on Christ, and it called for a response from the people who were listening. So the first then thing to look at is simply this, an awareness of the context. An awareness of the context. If we had a couple minutes, we would look at um, uh, Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 13, but I'll just describe it for you. It's that time when they had been waiting in the upper room, Christ had told them to wait until the Spirit had been sent out from heaven. As they were waiting, all of a sudden, they felt a wind, um, like the Holy Spirit, like a wind amongst them. They looked around and they saw what looked to be flames of fire sitting upon um, their brothers' and sisters' heads. And then all of a sudden, they began speaking in languages that they had never learnt before. They were speaking in all sorts of languages from people around the world. And what had happened is people had started to gather and they heard what was going on. They all of a sudden heard these individuals speaking about the glorious things of God in languages that they were familiar with. And so there, there was this amazing sort of heavenly confusion of people speaking languages they've never spoken before, of people being present who had never heard these people speak but had, were hearing them tell about God. Some of them were awestruck, and others of them started mocking. And they said, these are just a bunch of drunkards. And then Peter then, that was his starting point as he began to get involved then in proclaiming the gospel. And he says, let me tell you, these men are not drunk. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. It's too early to get drunk. Let me tell you what is going on here. And so he's aware of the context. He begins then to, to he's probably in the shadow of the temple. And as he's in that shadow, there's this group of people from Judea gathering around him. And he uses words as he talks to them, men of Judea, men of Israel, brothers, the house of Israel. In other words, his context was one of Jewish brothers and sisters. And it helps provide the starting point for him. You see, sometimes we, we need to think about that sort of stuff because I was looking ahead in Acts chapter 17 and there Paul, uh, the, uh, he, he preached his, uh, the sermon that we know as his Mars Hill sermon. And Paul had come into the city of Athens. And as he walked into the city of ha- Athens, he was looking around him and what he saw everywhere was idols. There was, there was all manner and all kinds of idols. And it said that within him, his spirit was provoked. He was really ticked off by what he saw here. And so he went up to where all these people gathered to talk about philosophy. And he started talking to them this way. Men of Athens, aware of his context, aware of who he was talking to. I perceive that in every way you are religious. That's an observation simply of the context. I can see from all your idols that that there's a religious part of you that worship matters to you. 
And then he goes on and he says, For I passed along and I observed the objects of your worship. He says, I also found there an altar with an inscription to an unknown God. And that was his launching point to proclaim the gospel. And he says to them, What therefore you worship as unknown, I want to proclaim to you. You see, see the advantage of just taking up a few clues of the, the environment in which you live? Maybe it's in Tim Hortons and they raise a point about something. Maybe it's an earthquake. And so you can go to a verse of Scripture that talks about earthquakes. And I was reading it in Luke chapter 21 today about what earthquakes signify. And that's a feed-in then to talk about the gospel. Philip, as he came behind the Ethiopian, he says, what are you reading? And the guy says, well, I'm reading Isaiah 53 and I don't understand it. He says, well, let me tell you about that. So there is an awareness of the context. So as we look for ways to be witnesses for Christ, just pick up little clues from the context that we're in, from the people that we're talking in, that can be used as stepping points or jumping off points in order to share the good news of the gospel with people. See, proclamation always begins, I think, with a point of context. It begins by creating a a bridge. It might look at an event or a circumstance or an atmosphere or an audience, and and it builds a bridge into relevant Scripture. So that's simply what Peter did. He was aware that they were making fun of these guys. He, He was aware of what had taken part. He says, let me tell you what this means. Then he goes to the second part, which, which I think is so critical in, in, in witnessing as well, and it's a familiarity with Scripture. It's a familiarity with Scripture. The thing that I noticed as I read through Peter's sermon was that it was, it was interwoven with all manners of Scripture. See, Peter didn't have the New Testament at this time, but he did understand the Old Testament Scriptures. And he knew it. And you think, what were they doing in those 10 days that they were sitting around waiting for the promise of God to come? Well, I just, well it tells us they were praying, and they were singing, they were fellowshipping with one another. I think they were talking about Scripture. Maybe the two disciples that had been on the road to Emmaus were saying, let me tell you the things that Jesus shared with us as we were walking. Let me tell you about the scriptures that he opened up to us so that we could understand why he had to die, why he had to be buried, and why he was raised again. And then maybe some of the other disciples said, you know, and I remember what he was sharing when we were on the sermon um, on that mountaintop and, 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 and he was talking to us about what it means to be in the kingdom of God. And so they were discussing all kinds of scripture as they were up there. And Luke records specifically three portions of scripture that Peter wove into his message. He wove Joel chapter 2. He wove Psalm 16. And he wove Psalm 110. And I think the important point as I was thinking about this for my witness and for your witness is simply this. That we are not to proclaim our own ideas. We're not to proclaim our own philosophies about life. We're not to proclaim our own viewpoints. We're to proclaim Scripture. And in order to need this, do this, we have to believe a couple of things. I think one of the very first things that we have to believe about Scripture is that it's God's Word. And, and again, you, these are all in that outline that you've got provided, but Hebrews um, chapter 4 tells us that the Word of God is active and alive. Do you believe that? There is a quality about the Word of God that is unlike any other book in the world. It lives. It is eternal. 
And so part of our, our, our confidence in using the word of God in witnessing is that I believe that it's alive and active and that it's able to do what I can never do with my philosophizing or my argumentation or my discussion. Another thing that we need to believe in, uh, Sean referred to it in his prayer, and that's from 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. All scripture is God-breathed. There is a quality about this word that is not only alive and active, but it is the very words of God. That's a whole five or six sermons in itself about what that means. But it is the very word of God. And so as we use the scripture, we are, we are in fact using the voice of God. We are using the reasoning of God as we speak to people. And so there's, there's this confidence that we need to gain as we understand what Scripture is. Psalm 19, verses 7 to, to 11, describes the fullness of the Scripture and how it just applies to every area of life. And so as we go about witnessing, as we go about proclaiming, we need to have this confidence that there's something unique about the words of God. Do you believe that? I think another thing that is helpful is we need to be familiar with it. In, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, he says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. That doesn't mean that we all have to be theologians. It doesn't mean that we all have to be experts. It simply means that we need to be studying the word of God. I believe it ought to be a daily practice that, that we spend 5, 10, 15 minutes a day just even reading one verse or thinking about one word, to be familiar with it, to understand it, to, to, to meditate on it, maybe even to memorize it, so that we have a familiarity with Scripture. I think on top of this, we need to know that God will help us apply the Word of God. I was thinking about this um, this morning, I was having my devotions, and praying and thinking through stuff, and I came to Luke chapter 21 in my plan, and it was talking there about the end times and how this world will be turned upside down, both, both um, sort of ethnically and, and geographically, and, and, and he's just talked about these signs, and then he says, but before all of this, they will lay hands on you and they will persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and the prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. Some of us will be brought before kings and governors. Some of us will be thrown in prison. Some of us will be surrounded by a group of our peers at, at Tim Hortons and, and they will be challenging us. Some of us will be in a university class and we'll, 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 we'll have our whole view of creation challenged. Some of us will find ourselves in, our, in, a, in a neighborhood gathering and all of a sudden there's a turning on us because people know that we are Christians and that we believe in Jesus Christ. And then he says this, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. Have you ever thought about that? That those times when you feel most uncomfortable, those times when you are most confined, those times when you feel most threatened, these will be your chances to bear witness. And he goes on then and he says, Settle it therefore in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom. Oh, isn't that refreshing? I will give you a mouth and and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Loved ones, we need to love the book. We need to believe in the book. 
We need to be familiar with the book. We need to have confidence in the book. And so as he speaks before them, he, he dots his proclamation with, with all manner of scripture. And you see, again, it's important because it's not, I can never convince anybody of their need of God. I can't convince you that you need God. But God's word can. God can speak to you in a way that I can never speak to you. And so, dot your witnessing with Scripture. So, proclamation begins with an understanding of the context. It's built then with a familiarity of Scripture. And then the the next thing that I notice in here is that um, Luke had an amazing, or Peter had an amazing understanding of the gospel. And what I'm about to say for the next number of minutes is so basic. It's so basic that sometimes we forget about how basic it is. But loved ones, this is what we need to know. This is what we believe in. This is what has transformed our life. This is the hope for the world. And so if you can remember these five things as you go about witnessing, as you go about proclamation, these are the five things that that matter as we share what God has done for this world. And it begins simply by talking about the life and ministry of Jesus. He starts there in verse uh, uh, 22, and he simply says to them, This Jesus of Nazareth. Easy for you to say. Uh, let me, if I, maybe if I read it, I can say it properly. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. There's a whole world of understanding simply in that. Jesus was a human being. Jesus walked this earth. Jesus was born. Jesus had flesh and blood like you and I had. That is so critical to our understanding of the gospel because it reminds us that God knows what it's like to be flesh and blood. It reminds us that God came and became part of us. It reminds us that Jesus, though he was without sin, he understands how we feel. He understands how we think. He understands the weight of temptation. And so it's not like anybody can say, well, God doesn't know what it's like to be me. He does. He was a man. He had flesh and blood like you and I had. And that's important when it comes to being a sacrifice for sin because he had to have lived the life that we live. He had to have faced the pressures that we did in order that he could go to the cross and die having lived a perfect life. But then on top of that, Peter says, but he was also a man that was attested by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him. In other words, God was saying, this man is not no ordinary man. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We call him Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. See what's going on here? At the heart of the gospel is this amazing mystery of a man who understands exactly what it is like for us to live on this earth. And yet in him was God incarnate. God in flesh. And that's so critical for our salvation because we needed one who was a man in order to die in our place having lived the way that we ought to have lived but could never have lived. But if he was only a man, his perfect life could have only had benefit for himself. But because he was God, his life has universal application for all who will put their faith and trust in him and it has eternal effect. 
he ever lives now to make intercession for us and to serve as our high priest. So at the heart of the gospel is simply an understanding that Jesus was a unique man. And in his uniqueness, he is able to save us. The second thing that Peter talks about his gospel is he simply says that um, he died. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. John MacArthur wrote a book with a title that we don't like to think about, but he says the title of his book is The Murder of Jesus. The Murder of Jesus. See, both biblical authority and secular authority tells us that Jesus was killed on a cross. There is no doubt that Jesus died. He was a historical person and that he died. And it's an unavoidable reality. And Peter says two things about him, and these are difficult things for us to understand, but yet they are so wonderful things for us to think about. The first thing that he says is that the death of Jesus was purposeful. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't like Jesus found himself in the wrong place at the wrong time and he was caught up by a mob and, and they killed him. Nor was it like, like God kind of thought, oh, sin happened and what am I going to do now? I, I don't, plan A is kind of falling apart, so I've got to come up with plan G, B. Oh, well, Jesus will die. No. Jesus was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Wrap your head around that. That the names of those who put their faith and trust in Christ, their names are written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. I don't get it all. I don't understand it all. But I know that the death of Jesus was in the plan and the purpose and the mind of God from eternity past. But then, he says, you killed him. You falsely accused him. You offered him up. You stood in the crowd and yelled, crucify him, crucify him. And the reality is, is the reason Jesus died is he died for sin. And what does the Bible say? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I had a part in his death. My lying, my anger, my lust, my greed. They contributed to the death of Jesus. That's so important for us to know that, that Jesus died at the hands of sinful men and women, but he died according to the purpose and plan of God. So the death of Jesus is part of the critical story of the gospel because he lived a perfect life He could give his righteousness to me. Transaction of all transactions. I don't get it. And because he bore the penalty for my sin and for your sin or for all who will put their faith and trust in him, then I don't have to bear the consequences for my sin because Jesus died in my place. So the death of Jesus is critical. The burial of Jesus. He was buried. Read John chapter 19. 
the burial of Jesus is, is attested. It's, it wasn't just a, he didn't just kind of pass out because of all the strain that he was under. He, he didn't sort of faint and then go in the, in, in the grave and he was resuscitated by the cold. His disciples didn't overpower Roman guards who were trained to kill and roll away the stone and take him away and beat on his chest and resuscitate him. He was dead and buried. His burial is a critical part of the story. As, as Peter says, part of the story is that, that everyone else who has died, they're still in the grave. Their body has seen corruption and decay. Not so with Jesus. Yes, he died. Yes, he was buried. But before corruption set in, before decay set in, by the power of God, he was raised from the dead. And that's the next part of this gospel story. The resurrection of Jesus. You see, this is, this is such a critical part of the, of the gospel. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then we are to be most pitied of all people. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then I have no hope of resurrection. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then God is a liar. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead then his sacrifice for our sins was not accepted by God. See, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is at the very heart of the gospel. And that is something that we, we need to proclaim because it is the resurrection that gives us hope. It's the resurrection that says, I will live again. It's the resurrection that says, yes, his sacrifice was accepted for me. My sins are dealt with in Christ Jesus. The resurrection is absolutely critical to the gospel story. And then the final thing that Peter mentions is his exaltation. He was exalted to the right hand of the Father. It wasn't a a resuscitation. For 40 days, Jesus walked with his disciples. For 40 days, Jesus walked again around Galilee. For 40 days, he walked and he talked and he ate. And he mingled with people. He met with women. He met with men. He met with a group of over 500. Um, He met with individuals. His resurrection was a certainty. But at the end of that, he was exalted at the right hand of the Father. And there's a couple things that are so important about that. One is simply that in his exaltation, the proof that God is in heaven is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Do you see the connection between that? Jesus said, I have to go to the Father, but when I go to the Father, I will send the Comforter. So the fact that the Holy Spirit now lives in us, the fact that the Holy Spirit has come and indwells us, the fact that the Holy Spirit brings the church together is proof that Jesus is in heaven. He's exalted at the right hand of the Father, and as the writer of Hebrews writes, consequently he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Christ now ever lives lives to intercede for you and I. You know, you ask me to pray for you, and I do my best to remember, and I'll often pray for you on the spot, and then I'll make a note, but I can forget. Jesus will never forget. He ever lives to intercede for you. That, loved ones, is the heart of the gospel. 
those five points are points that could keep us occupied in studying and thinking and praising and glorifying God for the rest of our lives. His life and ministry, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his exaltation. That is what constitutes salvation. That is the good news of the gospel. Christ conquered sin and death. Christ paid the penalty for my sin. God accepted his sacrifice. And therefore, I can have forgiveness of sins if I respond to Jesus Christ. And that's the last part of this particular sermon that Peter gives. There's a necessity of a response. If you are here this morning, you have to decide what you will do with Jesus. It's not something that you can just, well, I'll think about it tomorrow, or I'll think about it next week, or I'll think about it next month, or I, I want to get married first, or I want to get my education first, or when I'm retired, then I'll give Christ the, my life and my energy and my time. No, the gospel demands a response. Because it's good news. It's good news about freedom from sin. It's good news about deliverance from my sins. It's good news about forgiveness. It's good news about reconciliation with God. It's good news about hope of life not only here, but life everlasting. This is the most important issue you will ever deal with in your life. What do you make of Jesus? How will you deal with the sin in your life? See, the, the people responded as they heard this message. It says they were cut to the quick. They were convicted of their sins. And as I was thinking about this, you know, some of you might have come in this morning. And you might say, well, I don't need Jesus. You know, I've got, I've got all the money in the world. I've got my health. I've got a house here. I've got a house there. I've got a great job. I've got a great family. But then all of a sudden, one night you go to bed and you can't sleep because you know that there's still a piece missing in your life. That's the beginning of conviction. That's the beginning of the awareness that there's something more that's got to be done. There's something more important in life than health and, and money and great relationships. And so these men say to him, what shall we do? And sometimes we, we say that question because we want to come up with our own stuff. What shall I do? Oh, well, I'll just do a little bit more good deeds so that my good deeds balance out my bad deeds. And therefore, God will look at me, he'll balance out, and I'm in. Won't do it. Some say, what shall I do? And the answer is, well, I'll try a little bit harder. But the truth of that song that we sang drives that point home to us again and again. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the one I love. If we're honest with ourselves, trying a little bit harder just demonstrates our inability even more and more. Some say, well, I'll live a little bit better life. I'll, 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 I'll give a little bit more in the offering plate. Peter says to them, in answer to that question, repent and be baptized, each one of you. See, there's a personal response that is necessitated when you come confronted with the gospel. Notice what he says in verse 21, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the response that's necessary. It's not just enough to come to a conviction of your sins. It's not just enough to believe who Jesus is because as the Bible says, the demons themselves also believe. 
what we need to do is move to the point then of when I then say, and I need him in my life. Repent and be baptized. See, repentance, and we've talked about this before. Repentance involves a recognition of our sin. It involves a, a it's, and it's not, it's not a full recognition because I'm still recognizing in my own life the depth of how sinful I am. But it begins with a recognition of my sin and a feeling of sorrow and guilt that I have because I, I've, I've offended my creator. And then it's a determination to pursue not just other things, but to pursue God. And so as I repent, I come to the point point. I say, I can't live like this anymore. I can't deal with this anymore. I can't win the battles that I'm trying to win. And you turn to God and you say, God, will you forgive me? God, will you give me the help that I need? God, will you fill me with the Holy Spirit so that I can walk in a way that pleases you? And then be baptized. I know we have trouble here. And I know we came up against this when we talked about the Ethiopian who at the moment he's saved, he says, there's water, let me be baptized. I think we sometimes are a little bit too cautious with baptism. We sometimes put it too far off down the road. Again, my, as I'm reading the New Testament again and again, I am confronted more and more with the fact that baptism and repentance are like a, a hand and a glove. They, they somehow go together. That, that baptism matters. That baptism is not sort of an optional thing that we can do somewhere down the road or I don't need to get to it as long as I repent. The Bible seems to tie those things together. And baptism is this public declaration that I'm a Christ follower now. See, repentance is an internal thing. It's an internal work. It's something that, that I do business with God and myself. But then repent or baptism is a, is a public work. And it's, it's something where I declare to you and everyone that's at my baptism, I'm following Christ. Repentance tells us that, that God has done a cleansing on the inside. Baptism is a way that we, we, we demonstrate um, the symbolism of going down in the water and being brought back up, of being buried with Christ and being raised with Christ and the cleansing of our sins that comes to us through the blood of Jesus Christ. Baptism matters. Believers' baptism matters. And so we repent and we are baptized. And then he says, and then you will receive the forgiveness of your sins. Now, I know that connection. I'm not making, that's the connection he makes. And I'm not saying we're saved by baptism. But I'm saying that baptism is such an important part of this salvation process. But he says, once you are repent and baptized, all that happens, there's a bunch of stuff. That one is you receive the forgiveness of sins. If you don't know what it's like to be forgiven of your sins, you need to know. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he move our transgressions from us. You have cast your sins behind my back. Can you see what's on your back there? That's where your sins are with God. Can't see them anymore. Behind his back. I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. I will not remember your sins. Oh, do you know the freedom and the joy that comes from knowing that your sins are forgiven? And then he says, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That for me is just the the sign and the seal that I am a child of God. It's the indwelling presence of God in your heart and life. Do you know that? 
that, that when you come to God and say, God, I need you. I can't live with my sin any longer. Will you forgive me? He comes to live inside you. I don't get it. Still me, but he lives in me. It's no longer I who lives, but it's Christ Jesus who lives in me. I want to urge you this morning, what will you do with Christ? Will you not respond to him if you don't know him as your Lord and Savior this morning? As Paul says, I urge you on behalf of Christ Jesus, be reconciled to God. For God made him who knew no sin to be sin for you, that the righteousness of Christ might be placed upon you, that, that in him you might become the righteousness of God. And then one final note of urgency, he goes on and says, now is the favorable time. Today is the day of salvation. Loved ones, if God is speaking to your heart today, if you have come in here and, and, and you're, you're starting to warm and think, I need this, respond today. You do not know what tomorrow holds. Loved ones, may we be proclaimers of the gospel. May we be witnesses of the gospel of Jesus Christ.